file is part of the Swiss Libri Lecture Podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family, and colleagues, but we ask you to respect our copyright. So feel free to share it online, but preserve this message and don't modify the file in any way. Also, the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time are not necessarily representative of the views of Liberty Fellowship. Hey everyone. Uh, it's at the end of a very snowy day up here in Waymo, and I thought it would be a good time to release a new episode of the Swiss Libri podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Katrina as she talks about singleness, ambiguous loss, and disenfranchised grief. Um, I've not really ever heard these things brought together apart from what she said about them, so um, do listen, and I, I think you'll find something maybe that you haven't heard before. Okay, here she is. So, today's topic, as you see on your handout, is singleness, ambiguous loss, and lament. Um, so before I say anything more, a few disclaimers. Uh, so first off, as you know, I'm married. I've <laughs> only been married to one person, <laughs> so I'm really not qualified to talk about this. Um, so... I hope, though, I know, and you're all single, so you're all more of experts than I am about this, um, but I do hope I have some things to say. What You've been a single, too, at some point. I have, yeah, but it's been a, a while, okay. you know, been in a relationship since basically my early 20s. Okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, second disclaimer is, uh, I'm going to talk mainly about people who are single and don't want to be. Um, so I'm going to be making some generalizations, um, but I'm, I'm just going to be, I'm aware that this is only part of the experience of being single. Um, and I'm also not expecting that you will see yourself in this necessarily, or, and you shouldn't feel like I'm like expecting you to, um, and the third disclaimer is that when I say singleness, I'm going to be putting it in opposition to marriage as the alternative path. So I realize that this doesn't really do justice to the more like complex relationship patterns that um, people find themselves in. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do justice to it all. So that's kind of the stance I'm going to be taking. Um, so I'm going to be talking about people who are single uh, and who have never been but want to be married. So I'm kind of counting on you guys in the discussion time to broaden things out and kind of correct me where I need to be corrected, add things where you think things need to be added. Um, I very much see this lecture as something that's like in progress. So originally I was like, oh, I'm just going to talk for like 10 minutes and then we'll just talk. <laughs> but actually I like this is going to be like a proper lecture length and I hope to get it to shorter so <laughs> um, yeah so also right off the bat I haven't done tons of research on this um, so don't take my word for it um, it's mostly drawn from my own experience from friends that have talked to me or um, students or um and I'm going to try and mention where I'm getting my information from as I go along. Um, so 
yeah, listen with discerning ears because I'm not an expert. <laughs> so, uh, what I hope to do today um, is first off talk about some common and unhelpful responses to people who are single uh, and wish they weren't. Uh, secondly, I'm going to talk about what I think these responses lack, uh, which is accurate empathy for the single person's experience um, because it minimizes uh, the loss and difficulties that the person experiences. Uh, thirdly, I'll talk about ambiguous loss and disenfranchised grief um, and about how they relate to the single life. Then I'll talk about a few ways to live with ambiguous loss, so more like a psychology approach. And finally, I'll talk about what the Christian faith might have to add uh, to say about how we are to respond to loss, and um, mostly about the role of lament. So uh, maybe you can tell from this outline that it's more of a... Um, like pastoral or psycho psychological approach to it. Uh, so it's not as much of a theological approach to the question. Um, so uh, common and unhelpful responses um, to people who are single and wish they weren't. Um, so part of the reason that I have broken these down into these three categories is... Um, because I've had these things said to me, or heard them said to others, or I've said them myself to someone. Um, so that's kind of where, yeah, how I've, where they come from. <laughs> um, so the first response is to emphasize the beauty or the positive side of singleness. Uh, to do this, people will say things like, you have so much independence and freedom. You can travel, see the world. You can sleep in on Saturday mornings. Um, you can go on a hiking trek for several days in the mountains. Or you can go to Labrie, do the Camino. You can take classes. You have all these hobbies, like <laughs> listing off all of these good sides of a single life. Or they'll say things like, you're so young. You should enjoy it while you're young. Uh, you have plenty of time ahead of you. Or... Uh, they'll talk about the gift of singleness, quoting that First Corinthians uh, passage where Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm sure you've heard that before. <laughs> I certainly have. Um, so much to be said about this, but I'm just going to move on. Um, the second response is to talk about how disillusioned they are with marriage or how disillusioning marriage can be. Uh, they'll talk about how marriage really isn't that great, so you're not missing out. Um, so they'll talk about how difficult it is to live with their spouse, um, how their spouse never does the dishes, how they don't help with the kids, um, how they spend, spend money that you've worked for on unnecessary things. They'll talk about how they want to go hiking on their vacation, but their spouse just wants to sit on the beach with a book um, and how boring that is to them, you know. Uh, or they'll talk about how exhausting it is 
to be in a relationship, um, how much energy it takes, um, how, or like how thankless the job it is to be a mother or a father or being a spouse. Um, or they'll talk about how lonely they are in their marriage. So how their spouse doesn't listen, um, doesn't understand or way worse, uh, situations. Uh, they'll talk about how tied down they feel, kind of going back to talking about how free, how free single people are. Or they'll talk about how half the marriages end in divorce. Um, and if they're divorced, they might talk about how they wish they'd never married. Um, maybe. <laughs> of course, not everybody who's divorced say that, says that, but yeah. That's the second response. The third response is, to give a list of ideas, um, such as, have you tried online dating? Or, oh, I know this guy. <laughs> He's really great. Like, at least I think he is. Um, <laughs> He's single. <laughs> He's about your age. Um, or they'll say, like, have you tried joining the singles group? Or joining this club? Uh, or they'll say things like, I'll pray for the right man or woman to come into your life. Um, and the list response is my least favorite response because it uh, comes up as very patronizing and pitying um, somehow. And also it manages to put the blame on the single person as if they haven't done enough to become married. Uh, or even... <laughs> Kind of the subtext is like, you aren't enough yet. Like, you need to become more. Um, it's actually quite humbling to realize that, like, I have said some things like this to people before. Um, which is, you know, the intention, of course, is to encourage the person. Uh, but you end up just discouraging them. So, um, all of these responses are, in a sense, true. Single people do have a lot more freedom and advantages that married people don't. And marriage is really hard. Um, at its best, marriage is really hard work and really rewarding. And at its worst, it's hard work and hell on earth. Um, I mean, most marriages are somewhere in between that. Um, and sometimes doing things... Uh, going through a list can help you find, meet someone that you could marry. Um, it can make a difference. But somehow these truths are really painful to hear. Um, and often people feel anger, discouragement, loneliness, and frustration in response. Um, and I think those are like legitimate responses. Um, and I have a, a theory as to why that is the response. So, um, moving on to point two, uh, why do these responses often result in anger and hurt? So they reveal a lack of accurate empathy for the single person's experience and our failure to lament alongside someone. We're, we're going to get to the lament part in the later part of the lecture, um, but for starters, I'm going to talk about accurate empathy. So, uh, for accurate empathy, 
you have to first have an accurate recognition of what a person is going through uh, and be able to use your imagination to walk in their shoes, so to speak. Uh, so and that's obviously like a very surface definition. Um, it's a term from the psychologist Carl Rogers, if you've ever heard of him. Um, yeah, so uh, those responses earlier reveal that the person doesn't have an attitude of listening and desiring to know and understand what the other person is experiencing in order to respond appropriately. So emphasizing the positives of singleness doesn't leave room to accurately acknowledge the difficulties of the single life. Um, emphasizing the difficulties of marriage does that too, um, but on top of that, it destroys the hopeful imagination of the single person, uh, which is pretty awful when you think about it. Um, when somebody's like treasuring a hope of marriage for you to just say like, that's not a hope at all. Like you shouldn't hope for that. It'll make them feel like, well, what should I hope for? I feel pretty hopeless then. Um, and, uh, talking about a list of things to do to get married doesn't acknowledge the difficulties of the single life. And it also, also offers a very little chances of immediate hope or immediate change, um, to the person's difficulties. Um, so even if you do try online dating, uh, it's not going to be an immediate, like, there you go. Now you're married. Uh, you're still going to have like a lot of nights lying in bed on your own, wishing you had somebody there to keep you company. Um, and offering a list doesn't change that. Um, and also, like I mentioned earlier, giving a to-do list can have the horrible consequence of shifting total responsibility for the situation onto the single person. Yeah, the underlying message is you haven't done enough yet or you aren't enough yet. Um, so it can leave the person feeling really ashamed um, for something they don't need to feel ashamed of. Um, so, take a drink. <laughs> mm. So, what exactly do I think people need to understand about the single life before being able to practice accurate empathy? This is point three. Um, so, living life as a single person means that you are likely to experience ambiguous loss and disenfranchised grief. Um, so, there are other things too course but i'm just going to talk about those today what does it mean disenfranchised the word disenfranchised yes um so it means uh well i actually have a definition right here that i copied um it's deprived of a right or privilege i'm going to go into like details of what mm -hmm. that means um have any of you guys come across these terms before no okay so i came across these terms uh back in march Partly due to um, COVID, uh, this being something that a lot of people were experiencing during COVID, and partly due to personal experiences. Uh, so since then, I've been reading up on it and listening to lots of podcasts and things um, and realized how important it is to be able to name our losses and grief. Um, so ambiguous loss 
ambiguous means like has more than one meaning or interpretation, something that's not clear. Um, I'm going to be getting this next stuff about off of Wikipedia, basically, and psychologically to psycho psychology today. Uh, so it's nothing fancy. <laughs> so the term ambiguous loss uh, was first used in the 1970s by Pauline Boss. Uh, she's a researcher who studied families of soldiers who went missing in action. So originally, it was applied to physical loss where a person was physically absent but psychologically present. So examples are when someone goes missing, uh, if somebody suffers from infertility, uh, when someone has an abortion or miscarriage. Um, Since then, uh, the term ambiguous loss has been applied as well um, to uh, when a person is physically present but psychologically absent. So basically the reverse. So that'd be somebody with Alzheimer's disease who's still there, but they're not really there. They're not really who they used to be. Or somebody who's like had a brain injury and now is like quite different from the way they used to be. Um, So ambiguous loss is a loss that occurs without closure or clear understanding. So this kind of loss leaves a person searching for answers. Uh, And so makes grieving a lot more complicated and often results in unresolved grief. So how does this relate to singleness? Well, you see, when it comes to singleness, the desired partner or desired life partner is psychologically present but physically absent. It's extra complicated because you haven't ever known this person in most cases. Um, or in some cases. Uh, so it's really ambiguous because it's hard to put your finger on what it is really uh, that you've lost. Um, and you have a hard time putting into words how it impacts you uh, in different areas of your life. Um, so there are a lot of questions that come with ambiguous loss. Um, like... What does it mean for the big life milestones? Uh, What does it mean to settle down? Or should I? Should I settle for a person who is less than what I'd hoped for? Uh, What does it mean about children, about buying a house, about uh, renting a place that's more stable, perhaps on your own? Um, There are questions like, why is it that I can't find someone? Uh, but everybody else around me has paired up. Why me? Um, And there's always the question of timing. Like, how long do I wait in the hope of somebody turning up? Like, how long do I keep trying to make a certain relationship work? Or how long do I keep trying online dating? Um, That's really, it can be really exhausting uh, to live with these questions. Um, And it makes it really hard to live with this loss and difficult to cope and move towards acceptance. Um, So it's different from quote-unquote normal loss um, because there's no clarity as to what the loss is, like I mentioned earlier. So nobody has a funeral or delivers meals, sends you cards uh, or whatever. Like there's nothing, no like rituals that 
mark the loss and name the loss. Um, so it's really hard to name something that you've never known, um, except in fantasy. Um, this brings us to the second term that I'd like to talk about, which is disenfranchised grief. So this is a kind of grief that people who experience ambiguous loss might feel, um, not always. Um, so disenfranchised grief, it's a term that was coined by the grief researcher called Ken Doka. Um, so he d- defines disenfranchised grief as this. Grief that persons experience when they incur a loss that is not or cannot be openly acknowledged, socially sanctioned, or publicly mourned. So examples of times that people might experience disenfranchised grief would be, for example, when the relationship is stigmatized. So for example, partner in an extramarital affair. Or when the way people die is stigmatized, so by suicide, uh, drug overdose, or drunk driving. Um, So thirdly, when a person grieving is not recognized as a griever, so if somebody dies who's not an immediate family member, um, so like a coworker or an ex or, um, you know, even a grandparent, um, or also like, it can also be like further off, like somebody who's grieving the death of like an author that they loved, you know? Um, so fourthly, when the lost isn't, loss isn't seen as worthy of grief. Uh, so for example, the death of a pet or, non-death losses, like um, losing a job or going through a divorce um, or, you know, even having an injury and not being able to do as much or things that you love. Um, Would you mind reading the definition again? Of which one? The grief, uh, the disenfranchised grief? Yeah. Yeah. So disenfranchised grief is grief that persons experience when they occur a loss that is not or cannot be openly acknowledged, socially sanctioned, or publicly mourned. Okay. Um, So the fifth way that somebody um, can experience, or fifth situation in which somebody might experience disenfranchised grief is when the way somebody is grieving is stigmatized. So if somebody uh, doesn't have an outward grief response, or on the other hand, has a very extreme grief response. So, you know, doesn't have response would be, for example, just jumping back right back into work um, and functioning fine, fine and not crying outwardly. So people are kind of like, well, they're coping fine, they're good, like, they're not grieving, you know, um, I don't need to worry about them or, uh, ask them how they're doing, um, or alternatively, if they're still crying a year out, out, you know, um, people think they're being overly dramatic or that they should just get over it, um, so yeah, that's the last one, 
so these last two situations in particular uh, seem to lend themselves to um, or more easily apply to the single life because being single it can be like um, a non-death loss so it isn't always recognized as worthy of grief and also sometimes single people go through a really hard time um, when they're facing life as a single person uh, and sometimes their way of grieving is considered too extreme um, and it's like they're, they're crying all the time or they have these periods of time where they feel really sad uh, where it's really hard for them um, to be around their married friends and people are like there's just stop it like just get over it like um, it's kind of the way that it ends up being disenfranchised so one thing that's really interesting or not really that's interesting about disenfranchised grief is that it's a subjective experience so two people may experience the same loss but only one of them will experience it as disenfranchised grief so for example Anne and Jim both lose a pet um, in Anne's community people call her ask her how she's doing they know she loved this animal um, they visit her uh, listen to her talk about how she really misses her dog about how she misses how it used to snuggle up to her in the evenings or how she finds it really hard to go on walks uh, that she used to take with her dog because it just reminds her of her dog and uh, makes the absence feel bigger um, she'll show favorite pictures of um, her dog and they'll laugh together and think about the good times that they had with them or they'll cry together um jim's friends however just say things like it was just a pet or like just get another dog um so these two people experience the same loss um well not the same but you know similar loss but jim may experience disenfranchised grief whereas Anne doesn't um so jim feels like he shouldn't be grieving he can't talk about it or find support. He feels alone in it. He thinks his feelings are wrong. He feels ashamed, like he's not quite manly enough to deal with something so small as the death of a pet. Um, and he feels stuck this way. Anne, however, she feels like she can share about her experience, uh, knows she's loved uh, and understood by those around her. And this helps her live with her grief. Uh, rather than be overtaken by it. Um, the grief kind of becomes a part of her life and she continues to live. Um, so you see, like, this kind of ties back to what I said earlier about the importance of loving one another with accurate empathy. So we need to have an understanding of what people are going through in order uh, to know how to love the grieving person. Um, the water here. Um, so now we're going to move on to point four. Um, now that we recognize 
ambiguous lost and disenfranchised grief? What do we do about it? How's the community to respond to someone's ambiguous loss so they aren't left alone in their grief? And how is a single person to grieve and live with ambiguous loss? So first, I'm going to take the more psychological approach, so to speak. Um, In quote-unquote normal grief, um, people talk about closure. With ambiguous loss, however, this is complicated and may never come, like I've mentioned earlier. People who suffer from ambiguous loss are usually encouraged to pursue resilience. Um, so I haven't done that much reading on resilience, and I know it's kind of becoming more of a word that people are talking about, um, but I don't know very much about it, so take what I say with a pinch of salt. But uh, from what I understand, resilience is basically what allows you to handle stressors and things that, um, and obstacles without them having a long-term effect on you, a long-term harmful effect on you. Um, So resilient people have behaviors, mental and emotional resources they can draw on and support to deal with the difficulties uh, and the pain. So for example, if you're with someone with, who has, uh, if you're someone who has a lot of resilience, when your colleague says something moderately critical about your work, uh, you're not going to explode in anger at them. And you're also not going to take it so personally that you're going to just like implode and internalize it and think about it for months. Um, someone with a lot of resilience is going to be able to have the resources, use their resources to confront the situation in a realistic and mature way that won't hamper their daily life. Um, so Professor Jackson at Virginia Tech has written on how to increase resilience for single people who have never been married. Um, Dr. Mita on uh, Psychologically Today summarizes his work. Um, this is where I'm drawing most of it from because I don't actually have the article that Jackson wrote. <laughs> well, I'll get it someday. Um, <laughs> anyways, so they t- he talks about five things that help. Normalizing ambivalence, tempering mastery, finding meaning, reconstructing identity, revising attachment, and discovering hope. Um, So normalizing ambivalence. Start with that first one. Um, It's not uncommon for single people to feel like they're the only ones that have this burden or to feel very alone with their burden. Uh, so knowing that other people have experienced experience this form of ambiguous loss or other forms of ambiguous loss, honestly, can be really helpful. Um, so, and even being able to just label their loss and their feelings uh, can really help. Because understanding what's happening can alleviate anxiety, help people not feel guilty, and help them manage their pain and their sadness. Uh, the second one is tempering mastery. Uh, so one thing about ambiguous loss is that it makes you realize you don't have total control over the ambiguous situation. Um, so some people will try to totally control, while other people 
will sink into passivity or some people waver between the two, go from one to the other. Uh, Jackson suggests that tempering mastery can help. So basically it means being able to understand the loss clearly uh, and be able to understand which parts can or can't be changed. Um, so it kind of, it's like the serenity prayer. Do you guys know the serenity prayer? So the serenity prayer is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Have you guys heard that before? Mm-hmm. That's pretty famous. I think it's used in AA, but I don't know exactly the history of it. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-mm. So tempering mastery is basically striking a balance between control and acceptance. Um, so people who are single, who are single, have control over searching for someone uh, to marry, but have limited control over finding one. Um, so that's for that one. Um, point three is finding meaning. So um, we've said this before, but it's hard to find meaning in ambiguous loss. Um, Jackson says that uh, when a, a personal narrative about singlehood is formed and shared with other important people in their life, it creates meaning and allows healing. So he kind of draws from um, narrative therapy. Um, now, I like basically agree with this. Um, I would also add, though, that I don't think... And I don't really have much to base this on other than my own thoughts, but... Um, I don't think meaning is something that we should or even can uh, construct from scratch for ourselves. Um, So yeah, like I said, I haven't put tons of thought into this, but here's what I think. Um, What makes your life meaningful isn't you putting a whole bunch of effort into rewriting your story uh, and mustering up enough meaning uh, to make your life worth living. Um, Your life is worth living because it's a gift from God. Um, I think this is important because it disconnects us from uh, from our circumstances and it also disconnects us from uh, what we can do in the world uh, or can't contribute to the world. Um, kind of disconnects you from the works. <laughs> Moves you into grace, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um so if you're interested in the, the Christian take of uh, the meaning of life or the purpose of life as a single or a married person, um, I would recommend Philip Johnston's lecture, uh, which is in the Libri Ideas Libri- Library. It's called In Christ Alone? Question um, mark. He goes into this at length and talks about the two paths of singleness and marriage. It's really quite good. Um, Another idea would also be to check out Dan Allender's book, uh, To Be Told. Um, so he, he kind of draws from uh, narrative therapy as well. So it's uh, he's helping the reader understand um, his or her own role in their story and learning to situate it in the bigger story that God is writing. So similar to Jackson, he encourages you to write your story, but he phrases it as like co-authoring your story. Uh, and learning to see 
the greater story as well, not just your personal little your personal story. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like these things are I, these are my thoughts, but I feel like there should be a lot more discussion about them. Uh, and also for this next point, which is about identity, reconstructing identity. Um, so sometimes find people find their identity re- reduced to their relationship status. Um, so, but as we all know, um, your identity is a lot more than your relationship status, but it's hard to live like it sometimes or feel like it. Uh, so Jackson says it's important to reconstruct our identity and incorporate more layers into it. Um, he talks about how it's often hard to know what your identity is as a single person. Um, you don't fit comfortably into some of society's roles. Um, and also we, we need other people, um, we need other people to kind of fall back on. Um, so this can be like for small things, like who do you call when you need to move furniture, uh, or when you don't know how to fix something or how to do your taxes. Um, so often a spouse is expected to complement some of those weaknesses. Um, like for example, when we have problems with our internet connection, Marin fixes it. <laughs> I don't, mm-hmm. I hate doing that. I don't want to learn. <laughs> uh, it's just like the way it is. <laughs> it's quite nice <laughs> to be able to, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, for a single person, uh, this can make them feel complicated because, uh, there's not that like default. Um, so they might, they'll find like another default and oftentimes, or a lot of people, uh, default to calling their parents. Um, so this can make a lot of people feel ambiguous about their identity. Uh, so sometimes single people feel like they're a child until they get married. Um, so basically they feel like they're just waiting for their life to start. Uh, do you guys know what I mean? Am I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and again, like this isn't everyone. Um, Jackson suggests, uh, and here I'm going to quote him, reorganizing the psychological family, that is modifying the f- way family is viewed. This can be done in two ways. First, by reconstructing the psychological family membership in which there is simultaneous membership in more than one family. Second is to reconstruct roles, which can help manage ambiguity. Since there is no division of labor with a partner, single adults might find themselves undertaking tasks they hadn't anticipated, such as cooking or doing yard work. Think about roles more flexi- uh, thinking about roles more flexibly can also reduce ambivalence and boost resilience. So I find this point really interesting as well, because from a Christian perspective, like we're told a lot about our identities. Um, and one important thing or the core thing about our Christian identity is that it's defined in relation to others. So first in relation to God and then in relation to the church family. 
Um, so in relation to God, we've been made sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. Um, so that means, and therefore as a consequence, we are brothers and sisters to one another. Um, so our identity isn't something that we're constructing, it's something that we receive. Uh, so I just, you know, when I think about this, it's just really amazing, um, that this is how the Bible portrays it. Um, that it portrays this like sibling relationship between people in the church. Um, because there's, there's like an equality there, um, a shared, like, um, equal value there. Um, and it erases a lot of like some of our more problematic ways of, uh, identifying ourselves socially. Um, or at least it like makes them like secondary. Um, so being married is a secondary part of my identity. Like first, uh, I'm in Christ and a daughter of God. And I'm also a sister to other believers. Um, like I'm a sister in Christ to Aaron before being his wife. And I'm a sister in Christ to you guys. And I'm like committed to you guys as well because of that. Um, as family should be. Um, this is really, I don't know, it's quite groundbreaking. Uh, Philip Johnston goes into this, um, a lot. Um, he talks about how Jesus took the relationship of the family and transformed it into something different. Um, so to Jesus, your earthly family was a secondary thing. He even says that about his own family. Doesn't mean he doesn't love his own blood and flesh and blood family, but they were secondary to the spiritual family of uh, believers. Um, his, our primary identity is like how we fit into God's family. Um, so that means, you know, uh, people like eunuchs uh, in the Bible uh, who couldn't have any descendants, like they were really low on the totem pole as far as like, you know, socially speaking. Like they were less than a man like it was just like it's pretty like awful status and very little hope for them uh future hope um but here's jesus making them co-heirs uh with men who are fathers of many sons like that's crazy guys like i just i just think it's great yeah definitely listen to that lecture by johnston um (laughs) and I think this is really good news for people who are single. Um, and it's totally in contrast to our society. Uh, like one could say that we worship romantic love in our culture. Uh, I mean, you just have to look at our media to realize it. Like, you know, the moment that the couple gets together, it's like, okay, and happily ever after, like, this is what the movie was about. It was about getting these two together. You know, there wasn't, much else like everything else is just details right it's just like a means to the end which is getting together um and it's really presented as this massive accomplishment in your life too like when you think about these massive weddings where it's just all about them um and it's like they succeeded in life, you know? It's just, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just our society, but I think our churches reflect that um, mistaken view as well. Um, they reflect some of that society's values more so than Jesus's. Um, it's a pretty unfortunate reality, and I hope that that will uh, change, especially as there are more and more single people in and outside of church. Um, people aren't getting married as much or um, in relationships in much, broadly speaking. Um, so, yeah. Uh, moving on to the fifth point, uh, revising attachment. So to be honest, this one's a little bit more hazy to me as to what it means. Um, yeah, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, so revising attachment is the gradual process of learning to live with the prospect of recovering the lost person while simultaneously recognizing that the loss may become permanent. So basically, my understanding is it's learning to hold multiple or even opposing views at once. Um, so living with ambivalence. Um, so the challenge is to, quote, strike a balance between the opposing stances of staying connected and letting go. So basically it would mean um, learning to live while recognizing and remembering and even hoping for the desired person or thing. Um while also coming to terms with the fact that your situation might never change in the way that you'd hoped. Um, yeah, but I feel like I would want to read more on this, like why it's named that way partly. I don't know. Um, and the last point, uh, man, time. <laughs> ah, okay, last point, discovering hope. Or last point of this section. <laughs> uh, so, quote, uh, when coping with ambiguous loss, the overarching goal is threefold, to determine which hopes should be let go of, which hopes should be kept, and which new hopes can bring meaning and purpose to life. Um, that seems fairly straightforward, so I'm just going to like skip ahead. Um, and I'll be talking more about hope uh, in the Christian context, like in the last point that I make of the lecture. Um, so <laughs> let's move on to point five, like the five of the... Okay, I'm getting... Conf it's confusing the way I've like yeah. phrased this. I should have used Roman numerals or something somewhere in there. Or letters. Or letters. Yeah, I should use... <laughs> hey guys, it was late last night that I wrote this. Yeah, a lecture in process. I'll, um, note taken next time. Formatting. Yeah, formatting. I'll ask Aaron to format it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's not one thing I rely on him for, so. Okay, so um, the last point uh, where it's written, lament as a response to loss. Um, so it's basically answering the question of um, how does the Christian faith change things for those of us who are experiencing ambiguous loss? Um, so there's a practice that we see in the community of faith um, 
that they practice many times in response to loss. It is, of course, the practice of lament. Uh, so lament is a very um, healthy response to grief, a very good response to grief, appropriate. Uh, it incorporates naturally many of the elements that we just talked about um, in Jackson's research. That's kind of cool, actually, to see how um, yeah, research and psychology can point back to something we've been taught to do like thousands of years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so what's so beautiful about lament is that it's something that's practiced either alone before God or together as a community before God. Uh, so lament breaks down that, that isolation because it's a way of bringing our sorrows to others um, to be understood and shared by others. Uh, so lament, yeah, it can be a personal thing or a communal thing. Both are present in the Bible both are necessary. Sometimes they're mixed as well. Um, so this ties back a little, like a little bit of a, a clin d'oeil, like we say in French, uh, to the early part of the lecture, uh, where I talk about uh, things people say to single people that are hurtful. It's like basically these people are failing to join them in their lament. Um, they're saying that they should, like a single person, should be rejoicing or that they should be relieved or that they should just do something and stop talking about it um so what is lament and what does it look like um lamenting is to grieve with hope uh lament allows us to live with grief um so lament allows you to voice your complaints uh, sometimes in very extreme words, expressing very intense feelings. Um, it doesn't minimize the loss at all. It, like, maximizes it in some ways. Uh, so, for example, in Psalm 88, uh, or is it 89? I wrote 88, but I'm wondering if it's 89. Anyways, you know, that really dark psalm, uh, the psalmist says this, so I'm going to read first. 13 through 18 for you. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. And that's how it ends. Like, it's like really bleak and intense. But there's room for that. It gets needed. It's really important to look at things squarely and say, like, this is awful. But lament doesn't just do that. Um, lamenting is praying the complexities that often arise. So it's voicing sometimes contradictory experiences. Uh, lamenting recognizes the, the ambiguity or the ambivalence of a person's experience. So lament is like looking at a friend and saying, I feel so alone to the person who's right there with you. 
um, that's like, that's the ambivalence, the ambiguity, you know? Um, and a lament um, can start as pure, like, complaint or anger and end with reminiscing on God's goodness and faithfulness. There's room for both. They're both there. Um, and that's why you see the words like, but, yet, and, like, they turn up time and time again in the Psalms. It's because lamenting means expressing two truths that are intention, or sometimes more than two. Um, so Psalm 77 is an example of this. So I'm going to re- read verses 6 through 9. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his face again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then, in the next verse, he transitions. He says, Then I thought, To this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles long ago. He kind of goes on practicing this remembrance. And then he finishes off in verse 19 through 20. He says, this is the end of the psalm. He says, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Um, I really, that's like my favorite psalm at the moment. (laughs) I love it um, because the psalmist is so honest and so active in his lament. And you hear his inner dialogue. Um, You know, where he's like asking these really hard questions and he says, then I thought, you know, it's like kind of this inner dialogue that's happening to him uh, between like, he's like complaining uh, to God and then he's like also at the same time, like stretching towards God and towards like remembering his goodness, um, which helps him not only see how terrible a situation is, but also like the greater story. Um, of God leading his people and caring for them, which includes the psalmist. Um, so lament also incorporates uh, petitions. So uh, lament is not just sitting in a puddle and moaning about how you're a victim of your life or a victim of God or of other people. Um, there's some of that, but like, it's also a very like a very active thing. Um, so you know how Jackson talked about tempering mastery. Um, well, petitions and prayer of lament are a way of tempering mastery. Um, the way it does this, um, so temp- it tempers mastery because it's an active recognition that you can't get out of a situation yourself. And you need God's help. Um, And honestly, whether you do get out of the situation or not, you're still going to need God's help. Um, So it's like this recognition, this petitioning to God uh, for his strength. I was healing his strength. No, I just said that. Uh, Strength, healing, whatever. Anyways. um, (laughs) That's what happens when you leave your notes. (laughs) Um. So, uh, 
we see prayers of petition or petitions worked into a prayer of lament in Psalm 22. So it'll probably sound like a familiar to you because it's a psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. So the psalmist starts off with the complaint, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he talks at length about the difficulties he's going through, uh, so far as to say in verse 7, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Uh, I actually find this relevant for single people because there's often a lot of shaming and mocking that goes on with, like, in a culture, uh, our culture, for people who remain single. Um, I don't know if you guys experienced that, but I certainly did in school. Um, yeah. So um, he moves on from these complaints uh, towards petitions in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Um, But the psalmist doesn't just stop at petitioning God for immediate help. He situates his petitions into the bigger story of God's justice and redemption. Um, here's the rest of the psalm, in starting at verse 20. I hope you guys don't mind me reading these long psalms. No. Okay. Um, well, this next one's a pretty big chunk. Um, <laughs> but I think you're going to like it, Annalena. <laughs> You'll see why. Okay. I will declare your name to my brothers. To the congregation in the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel, for He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has listened to His cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. Um, May, sorry, I mistyped. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So you see how the psalmist is making these personal petitions, but he also is remembering the greater story. Um, yeah, um, as I said earlier, so this psalm was quoted by Jesus, uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, because Jesus wasn't spared from the wild dogs and the mouth of the lion. Um, he suffered and died. But, just like in the psalm, his suffering didn't wasn't the end of the story. Um, there was the resurrection. Um, and we also have that like hope 
that duality of our experience. Um, so yeah, this brings us to the topic of hope. Um, so hope, hope is rooted in truths that we trust in despite the circumstances. Um, Mark Verokop, um, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says, uh, lament dares to hope while life is still hard. Um, so, man, going over, sorry. <laughs> Uh, one example of someone who laments and still hopes is the prophet Habakkuk. Um, so a few months ago, I read Larry Crabb's book, When God's Ways Make No Sense, and that's where I'm kind of drawing this from. Uh, so he talks a lot about Habakkuk and how, or Habakkuk, I never know how to say it, um, as an example of how to live with suffering. So he uh, describes his response to suffering or Habakkuk's response to suffering in two words, tremble and trust. Um, so Habakkuk trembled because Israel was facing destruction. Um, so I don't know how familiar you are with this book. Um, but God brought judgment on Israel through the more evil nation of Babylon um, leaving him really confused and, um, yeah, just Israel was going to be destroyed. Um, but Habakkuk, um, trusted that even though he wasn't going to see Israel restored in his lifetime, that God was still faithful and would ultimately restore Israel and punish the people who had done this to Israel, who had pillaged, who were going to pillage Israel. Um, and he was, only able to do this, or live with this hope in the midst of his suffering, uh, because his faith was rooted in God's promises. Um, so that's why this, the end of the book of Habakkuk is the most famous part. Um, so here's the verses taken like for, from the last, in part of the last chapter, starting at verse 16, 16 through 19. So, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. That's where I get the trembling from. Yet, notice that word again, like in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So that is to wait for like justice to be done. Um, and here they only embroider the verses starting at this point um though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the star uh, stalls cattle in the stalls yet i will rejoice in the lord yeah again yet (laughs) i will rejoice in the lord I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Um, it's, I find that so beautiful. Um, because here we see him living in hope, even when his circumstances don't change. Um, because you hope that 
someday, someday God will set things to right. Um, and not only that, but he also has hope because he knows that God in the meantime is going to strengthen him um, and that he has not abandoned him. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a little bit about hope and um yep that's all i have for you guys today (laughs) so we still have like 35 minutes for talking if we if you guys are up for it